Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. A lot of the people I was speaking to and writing about were carrying secrets themselves. Abortion is a very complicated subject, and people need time to feel comfortable to get to know you and to open up. Hi, and welcome to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the law and the courts, and I am Dahlia Lithwick. I cover those things at Slate. This week's show is part of our summer series where we take a big step back from the maelstrom of breaking daily court news to open our eyes and ears to books that you may have missed or that maybe helped us look at this beat from a different, interesting perspective. And with that in mind, we are talking to the author of a book that I just devoured in the past year. It's called The Family Row, an American Story by Joshua Prager. Josh is a former senior writer for The Wall Street Journal. He's written about historical secrets and his work described by George Will as exemplary journalistic sleuthing, has shed new light on cultural touchstones. Josh's most recent book, The Family Row, is a double biography of both Roe v. Wade, the case, and Norma McCorvey, its plaintiff. The book has, in the year since Dobbs, really helped me to think through the fight over reproductive rights and freedom and justice in America. It was a finalist for the 2022 Pulitzer Prize for General Nonfiction. So, Josh Prager, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for your kind words and for having me. I want to start by saying uh, this book is very intimate. Uh, It opens really intimately with... A kind of generational, geographic, cultural biography. And in some sense, the book opens almost, Josh, with an elegy to this community of poor, deeply religious, sometimes illiterate, uh, displaced former Acadians. And they have too many kids and they can't make ends meet. And people just keep getting pregnant the minute they turn 17. I feel like I want to start with the ways in which your book is a love letter in some sense to a time and a place. And it is as much that um, trying to unpeel this moment in history that eventually produces Norma McCorvey as it is a polemical or political book. Yeah, you know, when I think about Roe and I think about abortion in America, I think about class I think about sex, I think about religion. And Norma McCorvey, Jane Roe, sort of beautifully encapsulates all of these things. And when I wanted to understand her, you would think that the logical place um, is to begin with Norma herself. But for a few reasons, as we might discuss, she was a complicated woman. And though I spent four years with her, she was not always the most sort of reliable narrator to her own life. And so I wanted to even look back before Norma And unbeknownst to Norma, she was the third consecutive generation in her family to have an unwanted pregnancy. And as you mentioned, it was always at the age of 17. And I I, I started looking back, I started with her grandmother. And her grandmother was a woman named Bertha. 
She was born and lived right along a river in rural Louisiana called the Atchafalaya. And she was not married when she got pregnant. And this was a catastrophe. And her family made sure that she sort of married immediately. They were Catholic. Interestingly enough, I'll just sort of, religion really is at the heart of everything. And I'll just pause to say, you know, she's pregnant in 1922. Only five years before, in 1917, is when the Catholic Church sort of takes on its absolutist stand on abortion that we all know today. No abortion is ever okay. But for 700 years, sort of previous to that, the Catholic Church should actually distinguish between abortions pre and post quickening, as they called it, the sort of point at a pregnancy roughly 16 weeks when the woman who is pregnant can sort of feel the fetus moving. Um, so you might have thought that there might have been sort of some room there for an abortion. But again, this is five years after that. Her family is very religious. She's made to marry right away. She becomes born again. They become Pentecostal. And then I move on to the next generation. And even though that shotgun wedding was a complicated thing for Bertha, when her daughter, Mildred, who is Jane Rowe's mother, then gets pregnant in 1940 at the age of 17, Bertha is even sort of harsher with Mildred than her parents had been with her. And they make Mildred leave town. She sort of disappeared. She goes to the big city of Baton Rouge. She gives birth. And then her parents take that child from her to raise as their own. And Mildred, that really is sort of the great hinge in her life. There's a before and an after. She's never the same. She has to pretend that her daughter, just across the Atchafalaya River, is in fact her sister. She's distraught. She becomes an alcoholic. She then marries. Her home is completely broken. And that is the home in which Jane Roe, Norma McCorby, is raised. And I wonder before we dive deep into the story, both of Norma and the case, if you could back up and tell us, as as you noted, this book took you years <laughs> to put together. And I wonder if you could just tell us, Josh, what your process was, because it does have this quality as you go through of you just finding things that it is improbable in the extreme that you're going to find and having conversations with Norma on her deathbed, uh, again, improbable. So I wonder if you could just take us through what this investigation was like for you, because it's quite an amazing story on its own right. Well, I feel like I got there just in time because I was able to sort of find, you know, again, reliable narrators to all of these sort of important points in Norma's life and the life of her family. So I just mentioned Mary. Mary, Norma's mother, was still alive when I found her. I found her in an old age home in Louisiana. She had never given an interview in her life. And she spoke unapologetically about the fact that she had beaten her daughter, Norma, because Norma had come out of the closet to her. Um, that's just sort of one example that leaps to mind. Basically, finding people at every turn. I then found also some of Mary's best friends who remembered to me. And I discovered that Mary had been disappeared from her town and gone to Baton Rouge only after Mary died. But I found some of her best friends who were in their 90s, who remembered to me when their friend had just sort of, you know, disappeared from town. Basically, what I did was I looked constantly for three things. I looked for papers that could sort of, you know, bring to life in black and white what it was like to be Norma McCorby, Jane Rowe at every point in her life. 
I looked for people who could sort of, you know, tell me if what she said was true and wasn't true. And then I looked as well for always the earliest recollection. You know, so often the stories that we know are false. The stories that we read are not true. And just Norma's life is has endless examples like that. Just to give one that leaps to mind, she told people that she was shot at. She, she was shot at, her home was shot at um, when she was just sort of stepping into the limelight in the 1980s when she was Jane Roe. And, and she told everyone this was because she was Jane Roe and that was the story that everyone told. You know, the New York Times reported that. But if you then sort of went back and found the truth, it actually had to do with a drug deal. And there was a little sort of police report. So I was always sort of going back and finding all of these things. There was one lucky break that I had. My quest sort of to, to, to tell her story really began when I realized that Jane Roe had not had the abortion she sought. She had, you know, in with Roe v. Wade, and it was sort of an obvious thing once it occurred to me. Of course, a lawsuit takes longer than the gestation of a baby. So somewhere there was a child she had given birth to in place for adoption. How to find this person? Well, Norma didn't wish to speak to me at first unless I paid her. I explained I was not allowed to do that. And what ended up happening was I found my way to Norma's partner, her on-again, off-again partner of 40 years, a woman named Connie Gonzalez. Though Norma had relationships with men too, she told me that she considered herself gay. And I found myself speaking with Connie outside a very little home in Dallas. And the second time I went to visit Connie, she mentioned that her home had just been foreclosed on. She was about to have to leave and all of her papers in the garage were going to be thrown out. And oh, by the way, Norma's private papers were in the garage. Did I want them? And I said, absolutely, those are very important. And I, I, I stuffed them into um, bags that were scattered and, and looking through them, they were a great jumble. It, it was like a big hunt for information. Who is this person? What is, why is this date important? What is this letter? Who wrote this? They were really kind of an important guide, really, to putting Norma's life together. And so the search was at the heart of this whole thing. I'll just say also the book did take me 11 years, and it couldn't have happened for two reasons um, had I not spent that much time. One, there was just an enormous amount of information to uncover people to find. But two, a lot of the people I was speaking to and writing about were carrying secrets themselves. Abortion is a very complicated subject and people need time to feel comfortable, to get to know you and to open up. The most important example in the book was not only Norma, but also her child, the Roe baby. So there was a lot of investigation. I mentioned Norma's mother and grandmother. The way that happened was when I went to the Atchafalaya River and I found Norma had a half sibling who was living there. She had not known she'd had a half sibling living there, but she did. And when I found this person, that was when I sort of learned these secrets of these unwanted pregnancies in the family. Josh, one of the things you say early and often in the book is that so much, not just of this narrative, not just of Norma's life, not just the story of abortion in America, but so much of how we are riven in this cultural moment is because we're kind of pinging between these two poles about sex and religion, and that those are defining, defining on their own terms, American stories. And there's so many ways that this plays out, both in Norma's story. There's so much guilt around religion. There's so much 
you know, you mentioned her mother was, you know, constantly getting drunk and hooking up. It feels as though there's nobody in this story who isn't on the move, who isn't in a car driving across. It, there's, it's just, again, an era of lostness and an era of trying to find yourself in these twin moments of religion and sex and maybe alcohol and drugs, too. But can you talk a little bit about how singular the abortion conversation is in the United States, both sort of in these moments that you describe in the early abortion wars through the 80s and today, but also just in the lives of these people where it is really peculiar to be living in some ways pinned between religion and sex in this country, and yet it's defining. Absolutely. I, I didn't sort of start out with that premise. It just kept banging me over the head. I mean, Norma once said to me, and she had a very funny way, a very sort of, she could be very aphoristic. And she said to me, one makes you feel good, one makes you feel bad. That's what she said to me about sex and religion. And the interesting thing is, she, so she grows up, I mentioned her mom, who has this child taken away from her. It really sort of destroys her life. She becomes an alcoholic. She's sleeping with many of the men she's serving drinks to. But again, she comes from a place where sex is completely shameful, and she she's fighting that. So she becomes born again, just like her mother did after her unwanted pregnancy. She marries a fellow named Olin, um, an electronics repairman. They become born again. They become Jehovah's Witnesses. So even more, like if you could even sort of up the ante on the Pentecostal upbringing that Mary had had, that really is the home that Norma is raised in. Everything is so severe and horrible and black and white. And she's sort of peddling these thou shalt nots at these Jehovah's Witness sort of churches throughout East Texas. Her father's sort of driving her about and she's selling, uh, I guess, I think the book is called The Watchtower and she's handing them out and telling people, you know, sex is no good. Abortion is no good, of course. Birthdays are no good. Everything is no good. And she's watching her mother, you know, sleep with many men. There's sort of a carousel of partners in her home when her father's away. And then at the age of 12, Norma, this is 1959, she was born in 1947, Norma sort of goes on a bus across the state line with one of her elementary school classmates, a girl. They check into a motel, and soon thereafter, the girl she's with tells the cops that Norma tried inappropriate things with her. That's the quote, inappropriate things. Norma is then very quickly sent to a school for quote-unquote delinquent children. And I mention this because she then goes to another school for quote-unquote delinquent children in Gainesville, Texas. And she's actually very happy. She realizes that as sort of illicit and buttoned up as sex was in, in her home, it's free and wonderful and joyful, and it feels good in the schools where she is a student. She's having sex with some of her female classmates. She's gay. She comes out to her mom, and as I said, her mom beat her. What's so interesting and what's so sort of to the point here in terms of sex and religion is Norma, you know, if you think about it, she's exposed to these sort of two really very different worlds. On the one hand, the incredibly religious world, the Jehovah's Witness world. On the other hand, this sort of very bohemian, free group of women that really defines who Norma is. It's her sorority um, when she finishes school and she's in her late teens and early 20s in Texas. They're out, they're brave. It's a dangerous thing to be sort of out in Texas in the mid to late 1960s, but so she is. 
And that exposure is really what defines Norma. It really makes her ambivalent deeply to her core about sex, about abortion. And I think similarly, it goes right to the heart of the fact that America is also of two minds about abortion. On the one hand, we have our sexual freedoms. On the other hand, we have our fundamentalist, you know, puritanical roots. And Norma sort of beautifully embodies this ambivalence and this uniquely sort of American view of sex. And it really comes to a head in the case of Roe when Norma, at this point, we can work our way to the case, how that happens, but when she finally is Jane Roe, she is really not thinking much at all about the movement. She simply wants an abortion. It's her third pregnancy. She got (laughs) the interesting thing about Norma. She was still sort of holding on when she was a teenager, to the idea that she would get happily married to a man and live in a house and have a white picket fence and have children and all that. And she ends up, she's a car hop at a drive-in spot, and she ends up meeting a man there named Woody, um, who was very crass. He orders a Coke and a fur burger. This is what he uh, asks for when she um, comes over to take his order. They end up getting married. She's 16 years old. Soon thereafter, She has a child. She thinks she's going to raise that child, but very quickly she realizes she wants no part of that. She's unfit to be a mom. And she begs her mother to take the child off her hands. She later says that that her mother kidnapped her child from her. This was ridiculous. She begged her mother to take the child off her hands. Her mother, Mary, who had lost a child to her mother, there are all these cycles constantly, she does take the child off her hands. The child's name is Melissa. She raises that child. Norma then quickly gets pregnant again and places that child for adoption. And it's in 1969 that she's pregnant for the third time and realizes she does not want to go through the hell of carrying um, pregnancies she does not wish to have. And she wants simply to have an abortion. But of course, abortion is completely illegal in Texas in 1969. I wonder if um, we can do one more piece of psychologizing with Norma as almost a stand-in for the America that you sketch out here. And that is, I'm really struck throughout the book about how, you know, she wants to be seen. She wants to be famous. You have this sort of uh, lovely line where she says to one of her partners, you know, one day the spotlight will find her. She's got ambivalence, not just about, you know, her sexuality, not just about pregnancy and abortion, but she desperately needs to be seen, Josh, and she needs to stand for something. And yet, in a sense, the whole arc of this book is about her not liking to be seen if it comes at the cost of looking unsophisticated, uneducated, foolish. It just, again, feels... Like, it's years before the reality show culture in which we find ourselves where she wants to count for something. And it's part of why everybody uses her. But she can't control the narrative. And also, she's a pathological liar. It just is so on the nose as a story of a character who is formed almost entirely by being invisible and wanting to matter. She's desperate. You're right. To mean something. And the lying, ultimately, I realized it came from two things. She was sort of trying to fashion a life story that befit 
her famous pseudonym, you know, Jane Roe, that was one thing. And she was also, because of sort of the guilt that was constantly hers, constantly sort of reimagining herself, not as a sinner, but as a victim. So she didn't have sex outside of marriage, you know, willingly, she was raped. She, again, didn't choose to relinquish the child she gave birth to, the child was taken away from her, and on and on and on. But she wants that spotlight. And there are all of these sort of sad, pathetic, you know, attempts. So for example, when she first gets married, she drives out to the West Coast with her new husband, Woody. She's 16 years old, 17 years old. And they decide she's going to be a singer. She's going to make it big as a singer. She doesn't have a particularly good voice that doesn't last very long. She really doesn't know what she's going to do. The only really comfort she finds at that time is it's a numb comfort. She's in this sort of, she's constantly drunk. She's in these lesbian bars where she's working. She's a prostitute for a time. She's selling drugs for a time. She doesn't know what she's going to do with her life, who she's going to be. And then really through just kind of a remarkable set of circumstances, she finds herself being asked to be a plaintiff. She doesn't know what a plaintiff is, but a plaintiff for an incredibly important case. She happened to have a very interesting man in her life named Henry McCluskey, who is an adoption attorney. He's an important man. In the late 1960s, he was fighting the sodomy laws in Texas. He worked on a case called Buchanan v. Bachelor, basically cops spying on men, having sex. And, and he, he wasn't a brilliant lawyer. And he turns for help. He has the guts to attach his name to this case and to take on this case. But he turns for help to a brilliant classmate of his named Linda Coffey. Actually, excuse me, he knew Linda growing up in the Baptist church where they both went to in Dallas. And later on, when they then meet again, Linda, who is still a religious Baptist, has become a feminist in college and then law school, and she realizes that she wishes to fight the abortion laws in Texas, and and she doesn't know where the hell she's gonna find a plaintiff. She and Henry sort of have an interesting relationship. They're both gay. They're both still living with their parents. They're both lawyers fighting these important, you know, horrible laws. And and she mentions her quest to find a plaintiff. And he's like, well, you know, I do have this woman who I'm helping um, with her adoptions, um, brokering adoptions for the children she doesn't wish to, <laughs> to raise. And I think she would like an abortion. And that's really how Norma this very sort of ordinary person is thrust into these extraordinary circumstances. And Norma does not sort of realize immediately that there's an opportunity here for her to sort of not only kind of become a very important person in America, but also to sort of wring a living out of her plaintiffship. She doesn't sort of realize that, and money is a constant source of struggle. But she's immediately struck by the fact that here are these two very smart women who would not ordinarily be spending any time with her, Sarah Weddington and Linda Coffey. And they're, you know, sitting down and having a beer with her in a pizza joint and talking to her about the fact that she could help them. And Norma is also very drawn to Sarah. Sarah is sort of fun and voluptuous and has red hair, which Norma loved. And Norma's really taken with her. And she agrees to sort of be their plaintiff before she has any idea what that means. And the sad thing is that sort of unspoken, but you know, she did correctly sense that she could be part of something important there. 
Yes, she only wants an abortion for herself. She's not really thinking about the movement. But again, it's like this passport to a different world. Class is really at the heart of it all. And later, when she sort of, you know, articulates what she's feeling then, the sort of first, you know, buzz of that nice feeling, she articulates, hey, I want to be part of your world. I want to sit at your table. I want to sort of join your movement. There's unfortunately no room for her at the table. They don't really want Norma to help in any way. And that's really a devastation that, that drives Norma ultimately to the other side. We're going to take a quick break, but before we hear from some of our fantastic sponsors, I wanted to extend a great big thank you to our fantastic Slate Plus members who powered us through Opinion Palooza this past June and who continue to support all the work we do here on the show and at Slate.com. Slate Plus members, the best. I mean, they do get some goodies for their altruism. They get ad-free versions of all of Slate's podcast, exclusive bonus content on this show and other awesome Slate shows like The Waves and Slow Burn. And they never, ever hit a paywall at Slate.com. If you are not yet a member, you can find out more at Slate.com slash Amicus Plus. And hey, Slate Plusers, thank you. You're listening to this podcast, so you care about history. And what a period we're living through right now, specifically when it comes to the situation in Israel and Gaza. Right now, you're hearing a lot of loud voices screaming about genocide, massacre, and occupation. But these words, slogans, and various headlines are not enough to help understand what is happening over there. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History. Catch up on previous seasons and enjoy new episodes from season six each week where they cover many of the topics that are relevant to what's going on in Israel today. From the history of infamous terror groups Hamas and Hezbollah to the story of Nakba to Israel's disengagement from Gaza in 2005, there's so much to uncover. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to podcasts. And more now with Joshua Prager, author of The Family Row. You make this point so starkly in the book, but let's let's play it out for a minute. What you say is that first and foremost, when Norma encounters Sarah Weddington and Linda Coffey, what she really wants is just to terminate her pregnancy and that they could have done that for her. You write, had Coffey and Weddington really wanted to help their potential client, they could have at least tried that there were referral networks in Austin, even as Norma was close to 20 weeks at that point in her pregnancy, women at that stage could have been moved elsewhere and had the termination. And so in a deep sense, what you say Coffee and Weddington really, really wanted was to flatten her into a plaintiff that they could use. And what she really, really wanted was to not be pregnant. There was no way to square that circle. And as you write, you know, they disappeared from her life after. Yeah, it's actually really devastating for me to have uncovered that. I am a person who is very strongly pro-choice. And I looked at these sort of, you know, young lawyers as remarkable, heroic people. 
um, who at the ages of like, you know, 26, 27, you know, Sarah Weddington argued the case famously twice. First time there were only seven justices on the court. Anyway, she's, she's a kid for God's sakes. And here she is doing this thing. And then, you know, but the more you look at her story, the more ugly it is. And yeah, you mentioned the referral networks. Sarah herself was involved in a referral network. There was an American Airlines flight that went every single Friday from Texas to California where abortion was legal even to non-residents through the 20th week of pregnancy. And in fact, and in some cases, the network helped to pay for people to have those abortions performed. Um, Norma obviously had no money, but they did not tell her about this network. And Norma, when she herself, she found a doctor in Texas. She later, of course, told people that she found a clinic that literally had dried blood on the floor. It was always very, very dramatic. The truth was much simpler and just as devastating. She had found a clinic that was safe, uh, it was a clean clinic. Um, the doctor was skilled, um, but it was $500. Norma did not have $500. And so they don't tell Norma about these sort of options. And Sarah doesn't even mention that she herself had had an abortion, that she had sort of gone south of the border to Mexico. She'd gotten pregnant in law school. They don't do any of this. And and what they really need is a plaintiff. And so they don't tell her these things. And what was amazing to me was Sarah in particular knew how wrong this was. She had worked helping to draft the ethical guidelines of the American Bar Association when she graduated law school, for God's sakes. That was literally her first job out of law school. And you can see how uncomfortable she was somewhere inside with what she was doing. When on the very day that Roe becomes law, you know, the day of the Roe ruling in January of 1973, Sarah lies to the press. She tells the press that the reason Norma did not have an abortion, the reason she carried her pregnancy to term was that Norma was worried that if she had an abortion, then her case would be rendered moot. Now that was utterly ludicrous. Norma was desperate for an abortion and would have done, as I say, anything to have one. But, you know, this is what Sarah said. She repeated that lie several times later. A few years later, she spoke to someone at the uh, at a library at Harvard who was doing research, and, and she repeated it actually three times over the next 10 years. When Norma ultimately finds out that Sarah herself had had an abortion, she finds this out in 1992, when Sarah writes a book, Norma really is devastated. And she feels that she's been lied to and duped and that she was just sort of taken advantage of. And of course she was. The interesting thing was that as far away as the leaders of the pro-choice movement pushed her, with the one exception really of Gloria Allred, and we could discuss her in a moment, but with just as far as they pushed her away, that was how close the pro-life leaders wanted to hold her. They sort of held her as a trophy. Look who we've got. We've got Jane Roe on our side. So it was difficult for Norma not to be taken in by that. That's exactly where I want to go. Um, I think that there's, uh, you know, the sort of almost counter narrative in the book is Dr. Mildred Jefferson, who is in some ways a mirror of Norma, in some ways she is Norma, except that she's black and has all, you know, sorts of opportunities, including going to med school that Norma never gets. But she really, in some ways, is the person who both, if we're kind of looping back to the idea of seeing Norma, but also using Norma. And I wonder if you could just lay that out. 
Yeah, Mildred Jefferson, I think, was the most, for me, the most fascinating person in the book to write about. I just couldn't believe that she existed. You sort of couldn't make her up. She was a very, very brilliant woman, born in uh, segregated 1930s Texas. She was actually born in 1926. Her parents, they were a teacher and a Methodist pastor. They actually split up when she's very young and she's raised just by her mother. She's not only brilliant, she's very precocious and she follows around her town, the white doctor, when he makes his house calls, she decides that she is going to be a doctor. She sort of believes very much in self-determination and anyone who will listen to her, she sort of tells them that she's going to be what she wishes to be. She graduates from college at the age of 18, summa cum laude. She then heads off to Harvard Medical School. She's the first black woman to graduate from Harvard Medical School ever. That is 1951. It makes her really a celebrity around the country. It doesn't hurt that she's also very beautiful. That's actually a big part of of who she becomes because when she then becomes, and we'll get to that in a moment, a leader of the pro-life community, they constantly sort of put her on television um, where she just sort of, you know, eviscerates her opponent and looks beautiful doing so. Anyway, she decides when she graduates Harvard Medical School, she's going to become a surgeon and she sets off to become certified. But what unfortunately for her happens is that there's no room in 1950s America for a black woman to become a certified surgeon. The Surgery Association, whatever the official name is, has literally never certified a black woman surgeon at that point. And she ends up basically toiling for 20 years. And when she's finally certified in 1970, her career has been completely sabotage, done in by misogyny and racism, so overt that when I found a FBI file about her, the doctors, the white powerful doctors who did not hire her and did not do this and did not do that, they just speak of it very openly. Well, of course I couldn't sort of, you know, have her on my practice. She's a black woman. And what's really fascinating to me is, you know, obviously at the heart of abortion is privacy and Privacy is connected to secrecy. And what what ends up happening in Norma's, excuse me, in Mildred's life, there's that slip because they really are similar in some interesting ways. What ends up happening is that Mildred meets a man, she falls completely in love with him. It's not a coincidence that she ended up in Massachusetts. Not only was Harvard there, but interracial marriage was legal there at a time when it was illegal in roughly half of the country. She falls in love with this man, a young white sailor, and he wants to get married. But she basically says, we can't get married. Look at what I've suffered. And if we have a child, our biracial child, there will be no place for him or her in this world. And she finally agrees to get married only on the condition that they will not have children. And it is this same woman who will not bring a life into this world who then decides that every other conception must result in a birth. It's sort of a remarkable thing. So how does that happen? How does she get there? Well, I mentioned sort of, you know, her career has been sabotaged and it's 1970. And just when she really has no hope ever of making it as a doctor, Just then, the American Medical Association announces that basically, if it tells its doctors, hey, everybody, if you operate, if you work in a state 
where abortion is legal, because obviously abortion was legal in a few states pre-Roe, then you have to provide those abortions. Now, abortion has never been something that Mildred has given much thought to. She didn't have a particularly sort of strong opinion about it, but it bothers her enormously, not so much that abortions are being performed, but that doctors are being called on to perform them. And she starts going to meetings of a of a small pro-life organization in Massachusetts. She raises her hand, she speaks, the sort of people there are spellbound um, at how sort of you know, powerfully she articulates their position. And the very parts of her biography that were just sort of, you know, sabotaging her career are catnip to the leaders of the pro-life movement. They're all white Catholic men. And here you now have a black Methodist woman who's a beautiful surgeon to boot. And very quickly, she sort of rises to the top of that nascent movement. And she is speaking on a program uh, at WGBH in Boston, speaking on, on a television program, I think it was called The Advocates, days before Roe, when Ronald Reagan, off in California, tunes in, hears her, and then writes her a letter saying that you have convinced me that abortion is the taking of a human life. He says, I wish I'd heard you speak before you know the legislation I signed into law. She's really sort of catapulted to the head of the, of the movement, and she very quickly becomes absolutist. Again, there is no, abortion can never be allowed, never be legal, setting aside the things that she herself has experienced in his life. This is what she's saying. And it's really sad and powerful, a window into the ways in which people can sort of, you know, push away their own experience and just sort of sublimate it and 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 become really draconian in their public beliefs and again you know you see the great difference between public private public private happens with norma's life it happens here with Mildred jefferson's life and many many others too let's take a short break and we're going to hear now from another great sponsor on our show sap This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Now let's return to my conversation with exemplary journalistic sleuth Joshua Prager and his book, The Family Row. In a way, I think, Josh, because this book is such a sensitive attempt to understand all these characters um, and to feel real compassion for them, you come away with the sense that there are all these very extreme, very political actors and that there's no possibility for compromise. But in a weird way, Norma herself at the end of her life had hit upon what she felt was a pretty reasonable, I think, sense of how we could move forward despite all these intractable positions. 
Yeah, you know, what was amazing is Norma, even though she constantly sort of sold herself to the highest bidder, and if you paid her money, she would say whatever you wanted her to say. She said, Obama murders babies, you know, paid when she was paid by Randall Terry, the head of Operation Rescue. And, you know, on the other side, she was just as sort of strident in her in her words. She really said whatever you asked her to say. But she had conviction. She had an opinion. And I know exactly what she felt about abortion because she said it at three of the most important points in her life. She said it in her first ever interview that she gave, days after Roe, she was interviewed by the Baptist press. Now again, the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest body of evangelical Christians in America, was steadfastly pro-choice at the time. It felt that abortion ought to be legal and that you needed to think about not only the sort of physical health of the woman, but the emotional health of the woman. And so there was no sort of contradiction there. For example, when one of their own, Linda Coffey, is, the, is really the matriarch of Roe and comes up with its legal reasoning and, and, and files Roe, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, Norma tells the reporter for the Baptist Press in the very first interview she ever gives that now that she thinks about it, even though she had been desperate for an abortion and she was sort of, you know, at that point, 20 weeks, et cetera, She now feels that abortion really ought to be legal only through the first trimester of pregnancy. After that, she feels you might be taking a life, she says. Then, fast forward 20 years, and she has just sort of been brought over to the other side by this evangelical minister, Flip Benham, who really is out of central casting. He dyes his teeth white and blow dries his hair and holds up a, a this leather Bible where the pages drip, you know, are folded down. It looks like they've been turned a million times. It's the guy really, um, he, he, he checks every box. He's always sort of preaching in this sing-song manner. Anyway, the day after he, he baptizes her in a swimming pool in Texas, as the cameras are rolling, she then goes on to Nightline with Ted Koppel and tells Ted Koppel the exact same thing, that I believe, yes, I'm now born again, and yes, I'm a member of Operation Rescue, but I do believe that abortion ought to be legal through the first trimester. This, of course, infuriates her new friends, and they t- say that she's a, 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 quote, a baby Christian and sort of still figuring it out. And at the very end of her life, when I was with her in the hospital, when she was dying, she said the exact same thing. This is what she believed. And, you know, when Harry Blackman wrote the majority opinion in Roe, he writes in a preamble to it, that what often determines which side of the issue a person is on is their exposure to it, what he calls the raw edges of human existence. Basically, if you know somebody who had an abortion or who needed an abortion or wanted an abortion, you will then be sympathetic to their sort of point of view. He doesn't mention there that his own daughter um, had been unhappily pregnant in college and that that had really sort of rerouted her life What is interesting about Norma is unlike almost all of us, as I mentioned earlier, she really had been exposed to two very different worlds, a religious world that had no room for sex or abortion and a sort of bohemian world that believed that a woman should always have a right to choose. And this really is where Norma landed. What is very interesting to me is that the two movements, the pro-choice movement and the pro-life movement, once 
also publicly recognized that this was not only a very complicated issue, but that it demanded nuance. So to give an example, you have the National Abortion Federation, which really represented um, the abortion providers of America. In 1985, they are sanctioning, they vote to sanction a man named Dr. George Tiller, who was the first person providing abortions in the third trimester. Um, They say basically they're going to refer any patients they find out about to the Kansas State Board of Medical Examiners or whatever the name of the organization was. They're very upset about this when he's performing abortions at 26 weeks. Just a few years later, though, things change and they give him their highest award. Similarly, when Mildred Jefferson is on the board of the National Right to Life Committee, she's one of only four members on their board of more than 50 people who believes that abortion, you know, can never be made possible. And obviously now that is a mainstream position in that movement. So as Norma went, um, well, I should say Norma was sort of at a time when she became Jane Roe, the fact that she was sort of conflicted enough to minds about this, I think really so were many, many others. And that's really not where we are today. One of the other characters I write about a lot in the book is a remarkable man, a man named Dr. Curtis Boyd, an abortion provider from Texas, like Linda Coffey, like Mildred Jefferson. He's brilliant, he's a religious Christian, he's from Texas. And I mention him just because he, he's really one of the pioneers of legal abortion in this country. He is the one who kind of standardizes and, and makes routine and safe the accepted method of second trimester abortion today, dilation and evacuation. He then, when his friend, Dr. George Tiller, who I mentioned, is murdered, he then becomes, he steps into that void, he becomes the largest provider of third trimester abortions in this country. But what really marked him above all was his complete impenitence about his work. He said that abortion is only something that is a social and moral good, that there was no reason to ever feel that you needed to sort of equivocate or you needed to sort of acknowledge that this might be something complicated. He said, no, you are enabling women to sort of control their own lives. Decades later, you had people like Katha Pollitt saying the exact same thing, of course, but he said this many, many years before. And that point of view really now is what I think really defines the pro-choice movement and was at odds with not only Norma, but other people at the heart of Roe v. Wade, Henry Wade, the district attorney in Dallas was actually privately pro-choice. Linda Coffey mentioned her now several times. She also felt that while abortion needed to be legal, it was not something that she as a religious Christian could ever imagine doing herself. So it, it, was, a different, it was a different time back then when you talked about abortion, um, a very different place than we are today. And I think maybe that's the service that this book provides is when I compare the narrative, you know, both Justice Blackman's treatment of uh, Jane Roe and her interests in the original Roe v. Wade, which is glancing, and Justice Alito's treatment of actual pregnant people in Dobbs, which is maybe less than glancing. It seems to me that the service of this book, Joshua, was filling out lives, was telling narratives of complicated characters who actually have to be smushed flat in order to be, you know, operative in a legal framework, but who are so much more than that. And it also feels that in this year 
since Dobbs came down, we have reverted to telling those stories, to telling stories of fully fleshed out people who have multiple kids already, who can't afford to have an abortion, who desperately want this child, who can't have uh, 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 the pregnancy succeed. I mean, I think that we are in a really strange moment in this country right now where we are seeing the nuance and the complexity of pregnancy and childbirth and child rearing, maybe for the first time as a political matter, it seems like your book in some sense landed at exactly the moment in which we realized we'd been having this conversation in two dimensions. I do think that abortion is complicated for good reason. I do. And I think that Justice Blackman recognized that. And I think Roe recognizes that. And you're right, like the Dobbs ruling, it's ridiculous. You know, you're basically a chump if you like give an inch and recognize that, you know, hell, we've got the power, we can sort of now just sort of uh, overturn Roe and move along. It's actually striking. There's even a sentence in the ruling about how basically it's not the job of the Supreme Court to care about, you know, what the public thinks. There was a line I read in the book, A Clash of Absolutes, written by Lawrence Tribe. And he says that the only chance that America ever has a moving past this clash, getting past this the clash of Roe v. Wade is, and I'm quoting, by giving voice to the human reality on each side of the versus, the Roe versus Wade. That is something I do believe, actually. And, you know, yes, they're, both sides realize this. You know, I mentioned that Justice Blackman talked about exposure, sort of determining which side a person is on. And you've basically got, you know, People now, on there's a crop of initiatives online where women are telling their stories who've had abortions. I think that's very, very important to do. On the other side, you also have the sort of pro-life desperately trying to sort of find women who will say that abortion caused them emotional harm. It was actually one of Norma's lawyers, a man named Alan Parker, who started collecting these stories, these affidavits, introducing them into the judiciary. And it's sort of they went all the way up to the Supreme Court in the case of Gonzalez v. Carhart when Justice Kennedy sort of shocked everyone and lent them legitimacy. And even though there is no validity at all, sort of on a macro level, to the claim that abortion causes women psychological harm, will, are there individual cases of that? Absolutely. But in fact, conversely, it's adoption that is often very painful for a woman who chooses to relinquish a child, even if she believes in, in, in doing so. Um, but again, you had Alan Parker introducing these stories. People are trying to humanize the issue. Ultimately, I do think that that is a good thing. I think that Western Europe has it right. I think that it is not a horrible thing to acknowledge, even if you are steadfastly pro-choice, that having an abortion is not the same thing as sort of you know, having a tooth pulled. And that basically you do have to wrestle not only with the reasons a woman wishes to have an abortion, but the humanity of the fetus. But there's no way, given what's happened over the last 50 years, the way that abortion has been politicized in this country, the sort of, you know, seeming irreconcilability, as we discussed, of sex and religion, that America can get to where Western Europe is. Where, okay, so maybe the cutoff for legal abortion is somewhere along the lines of where Lindsey Graham is saying at 15 weeks, like it is, you know, in certain countries in Western Europe. But until that point, 
It is the exact opposite of the way it is here. Here we're throwing obstacle after obstacle in the way of the pregnant girl or woman, whereas over there abortion is available, it's free, a woman is not made to get consent or be told that it's going to cause cancer or on and on and on and on. I'll just finish this by saying that there have been folks who felt, like I remember Jeffrey Rosen wrote an article about this 20 or so years ago that I quote in my book, saying, you know what, horrible as it is, and I think Linda Greenhouse actually recently wrote a column about this too, horrible as this is, the overturning of Roe, it will ultimately lead to a better place. That's what they believe, that there are generations of of women who could just take legal abortion for granted, but now we can't do that. And now, just as Roe galvanized those opposed to it, Dobbs has galvanized those opposed to it. And, and, I, and I do think that there is some truth to that. Of course, you're then you're, you're ending up with all of the collateral damage. It's horrible. The sort of poor people who can't afford, just as Norma couldn't afford, to go to where abortion was legal. But it might be when we look back on this in several years that ultimately we did get to a better place. I certainly pray that that is the case. And if that is the case, Roe will be even more connected to Norma because she was a person who believed that you need to look at both sides of this complicated issue and yet make sure that abortion is legal for a woman who wishes to have one. Joshua Prager is a former senior writer for The Wall Street Journal. The book is called The Family Row. It's a double biography of Roe v. Wade and Norma McCorvey herself. And it was a finalist for the 2022 Pulitzer for general nonfiction. I love, Josh, that you end on this project of trying to see people in full so that we can maybe begin to see problems in full. And I think your book arrived at exactly a moment in which that is both hard to do and deeply necessary. So thank you so very, very much for both the book and your time today. Thank you, Dahlia, for having me. I really appreciate it. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much for your letters and your notes and your questions. You can always keep in touch at amicus at slate.com. Or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio at Slate. And Ben Richmond is our senior director of operations. We'll be back with another episode of Amicus in two short weeks. Until then, take good care. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.